Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesterfield Baptist Church. Continuing in our series on avoiding confusion, the message this morning is entitled The Reliability of the Bible. We'll be preaching from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, I do have to say that I did make a little mistake in this uh, message, and I want to tell you about it up front. At some point in this message, I'm going to say that Peter lived 500 years ago. That obviously is not true. I had the Reformation on my mind. I've been studying the Reformation. And uh, obviously we know that Peter was alive during the time of Christ over 2,000 years ago. And so I do apologize for that. But I want to let you know about it up front. Hope you enjoy the message. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, we are continuing in our Sunday morning series called Avoiding Confusion. Avoiding Confusion. Getting clarity through the Word of God. And we've been talking about developing a biblical worldview. We talked about last week about how a a worldview is the lens through which you see the world. If you had some property in the Smoky Mountains, would you put the big picture window facing the cliff right behind you? Or would you put the big picture window facing the mountain range out in the distance? You'd frame it with the view in front. And that's what a worldview is. A worldview is how you frame and what you see, and it sets the beliefs and ideas in your life. And what we need to do, especially in our country now more than ever, what Christians need is develop a biblical worldview. And so that's what we've been talking about today uh, through, the, through this series, a biblical worldview. And what I want to talk about this morning I tell you what, let me read my scripture and then I'll give you the title of my message. Do you have your places in 2 Timothy chapter 3? One last time, I'm going to invite you to stand, respect and reverence to the word of God. We'll read our scripture, pray, and then sit back down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to start, begin reading in verse number 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The title of the message this morning is The Reliability of the Bible. The Reliability of the Bible. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'd be with the message today. Lord, I pray the power of God on this service, Lord, and it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ, and it's about your word this morning. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would speak this morning, the power of God would be in this place, and we'd come out of this service today with a different view of the Word of God. Thank you for all you have done for us. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. When Christians call this the Word of God, what exactly does that mean? 
When Christians look at this, and, and what do we mean when we say, this is the Word of God? Okay? If this book right here is going to form our worldview, then we need to know why we trust it so much. We need to know why we trust the Bible so much. If this is going to form our worldview, then we need to know why it is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. We need to understand why we trust this book. Let me tell you something about this book. Satan has fought this book from the very beginning. From the very beginning of time, Satan has fought this book. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden. Yea, hath God, God said? Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Satan has been using this trick since the beginning of time. Are you sure God said that? Are you sure he meant by that? Are you sure God even said that in the first place? What Satan has been doing from the very beginning of time is questioning the word of God. That was his first trick. It's his best trick to question the word of God. And though it's interesting how historians will vouch for the viability of the Bible all the time, but then some smart theologian from some great seminary somewhere with a doctor in front of his name and all these letters coming after who studied Greek and Hebrew all his life, he comes in and he says, you know, I am an authority of the Bible. I will tell you what the Bible means. And I'm sorry, uh, we don't hold that view here at Chesbro Baptist Church that a man is an authority over the Bible because here at Chesbro Baptist Church, the Bible is authority over us. The Bible is our authority. It is our absolute truth. It is our authority. A lady was on a plane and she was, had her Bible open in her lap and she was, she was reading her Bible and a man sat down beside her and saw her reading the Bible and he looked over at her and said, do you really believe that book is the Word of God? Do you really believe that God wrote that book? And she looked at him and said, yes, I do. And he said, well, what about that guy who was swallowed by a whale? And she said, oh, you're talking about the story of Jonah. Yes, I believe that happened. And he said, well, how long was he inside the well? And she said, well, I have an idea, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And then being a smart aleck, the guy, look, the guy looked at the woman and said, well, what if you get to heaven and he's not there? She looked back and said, well, then you can ask him. So there is some, there, so that's a woman who was confident in her Bible. Now, I want to tell you this morning in verse number 16, it said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This Bible is reliable. I want to discuss this morning some points about the reliability of the Bible. I want to tell you this morning that the Bible contains the inspired words of God. That word inspiration in the, in the Greek, it's the word theopanudos, and it literally means a god breathed book. The Bible is given to us by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Genesis that God breathed 
into Adam and Adam became a living soul and God breathed the words of the Bible and that's why the Bible these words are alive today. We believe this is a God-breathed book. John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, that means to make alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are the spirit. They are life. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is quick. That word quick means alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of, uh, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God breathed into the living authors the words that, they, that he would want penned. These words are God's words and they are alive. You know, sometimes when you hear preaching or sometimes you're reading the Bible and something comes upon you called conviction. And when conviction comes upon you and sometimes the word of God can really cut you deep. And the reason why is because that is alive. These words are alive. You know, sometimes people try to try to get their point across on Facebook or social media and they try to make a clever meme and they take a picture and they try to put some clever words on it. You really want to get somebody's attention. All you got to do is post a Bible verse because the Bible can cut people. The Bible can convict people. No other book can do that. Why? Because the words in this book are alive. These words are cutting, convicting. That's why the Bible says they're like a two-edged sword because these, these verses in this book, they cut. Then it says you're a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So this book helps me discern my heart. Why? Because my heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And if, if I didn't have the word of God, I wouldn't know that my heart is wicked. I wouldn't know that I shouldn't trust my heart. I wouldn't know that I shouldn't follow my heart if I didn't have the Bible. Because the Bible tells me it discerns my thoughts and intents. Tells me which ones are right and which ones are wrong. So it helps me discern my own heart. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So it's a living word. It's an incorruptible seed, a seed that will never die. The seed of the word of God will never die. It will always produce new fruit. God's word is inspired, it's inspired words. It comes from a divine author. It's given to us. But here's the thing. It was still written by humans. Still written by men. And people look at this book and they said, how can you say God wrote this book when it, you, it was written by human beings? It was written by men. This is this. This is they look at this and they say this was written. This is just some random dude's opinion. OK, how can you say it's written by God when it was written by men? Well, let's look at the Bible in here for a second. But hold on a second. Let me say this. How can you prove the Bible's true by looking in the Bible. Some people would say that. How can you, how can you say 
How can you prove the Bible by using the Bible? Isn't that an oxymoron? Doesn't that contradict? If you're trying to prove this Bible is true, wouldn't you only use an outside source to prove it's true? Well, let me ask you a question. How do you prove that a $100 bill is real? You examine it. How are you going to prove a $100 bill is real if they say, well, you can't touch it, you can't even look at it, but you have to prove that the $100 bill is real? Man, unless you take it and you take that little invisible marker and, and see if it changes color or not, you're not going to know if it's real or not. So this idea that you can't prove the Bible by using the Bible, I think is false. But, but let's, let's examine this for a second. 2 Peter 1.21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So man didn't just come up one day and say, Hey, I'm just going to write what I want to write. I'm just going to write what I, what, I, what I feel like writing. But the Bible says that holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God was the author, but man was the penman. God said the Holy Spirit moved men to write what he wanted them to write. Yes, they wrote from their context. Yes, they wrote in their own style. But the very words that they wrote were the very words of God. I want you to understand this morning that that book right there was written by over 40 men in different places of the world, all with different backgrounds, over a span of 1,500 years. But when you read this book, it speaks with one verse. With one book speaks with a continuity and this voice and this Bible speaks with a unity that reverberates through all of its pages because it was written by one person. It was written by God. Amen. Don't you believe that this is written by God today? It's the, and the reason why it speaks with so much unity and so much cohesion is because it was, God is the author of this book. 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. You know, the writers expressed that they knew they were writing Scripture when they were writing this down. They knew they were writing the words of God. How many times have we heard an Old Testament prophet say, uh, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. So we have... Why do we have God's divine inspired word from a divine author? Because we're a needy people. We're a needy people and we need God's guidance. We need, uh, we need him to guide us. We need his words uh, to guide us. So not only is the word of God inspired this morning, but I also want to show you this morning that the word of God is inerrant. The word of God is inerrant. That means the word of God is infallible. That means there are no errors in the word of God. You know, the word of God wasn't written for historical fact. It wasn't written for historical fact. But, you know, there's a funny thing. Is every time a historical uh, fact comes up in the Bible, the Bible matches history. The Bible wasn't written for scientific fact, but isn't it funny how every time a scientific fact comes up, we find it in the Word of God first? 
Isn't, isn't that interesting? You know, you understand that this Bible is the only religious text that has an account of God creating our universe from nothing. Do you know that that aspect makes our Bible unique? It's the only one that says that God created our universe from absolutely nothing. That makes our Bible unique. Um, another thing is that this Bible contains fulfilled prophecy. I don't think we understand as Christians, I don't think we think about it enough. I don't think we understand and think about what the ramifications of fulfilled prophecy means in our Bible. You say, well, is prophecy really that important? I tell you what, you make a prophecy and see if it comes true in 100 years and we'll see if, if it's important or not. See, prophecy, prophecy is something that can only come from the mind of God. It can't come from the mind of man. So if you have fulfilled prophecy, you have proof that God spoke. You have proof that God spoke. No other religious text in the world has prophecy like the Bible. Do you know how many times that the Koran has prophecy in it? Zero. The Koran has zero prophecy. Goose egg. Zero prophecy in it. They didn't even attempt it. Any other time religious texts attempt prophecy, they fail every single time. Watchtower Society, Book of Mormon, all attempt prophecy and it all fails. Prophecy makes this book unique. You understand that this Bible predicted that Alexander the Great would take over these cities and it was very specific on how he would do it. And it, 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 it made that, that prophecy hundreds of years before Alexander the Great did it and it came true in the Bible in specific, precise detail. We studied fulfilled prophecy on Wednesday nights in the back. And we did it for six or eight weeks and we did not even scratch the surface of the fulfilled, not just the unfulfilled prophecy, but the fulfilled prophecy that's in this book. Another thing we have in this book is, you know, we have accurate historical facts. We have accurate historical facts. You know, the Bible gives an account of Pharaoh and it gives an account of of the, the Jews being slaves in Egypt. It even told how the bricks were made and how the straw and the mud was made for the bricks in Egypt. And then you go to the Museum of, of History in London and you can actually see bricks there from Egypt made how the Bible says that they were made. Even these bricks even have the stamp of King Ramses II on it. Once again, confirming the biblical account. There's a people in the Bible called the Hittites. The Hittites. And for years and years and years, people said, academia said that the Hittites did not exist. The Hittites never existed. But then one day, Dr. Jones came along and rescued the Hittites and he dug up, an archaeologist uh, came, came up and, and dug up proof that the Hittites, uh, that the Hittites, actually existed. So once again, you got Indiana Jones coming to the rescue. 
those of you who don't know, sometimes I make movie references. But, uh, you know, so archaeologists, once again, proving the Bible right. The, the record of the Hittites is in that same museum of London, the record of their whole civilization. And for hundreds of years, the, the Bible said they existed and there was no proof. And then they proved the Bible right. And we find out that the Bible was right the entire time. In the book of Daniel, there's a man named Bel Belshazzar. Said he was the king of Babylon. Now outside the Bible, we have lists of kings of Babylon, and Belshazzar is nowhere on there. So for years said, oh, this was a mistake. This, this shouldn't be here. Until one day an archaeologist dug up a, a, a clay tablet that proved that there was a king in Babylon named Belshazzar. And once again, the Bible's proved true. I could go on and on. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read you this verse. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, a region of Trichonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Now for years, people said, during the time of Christ, there was not a ruler named Lysanias of Abilene, which is in Syria. They're saying Lysanias did not exist at this time. He lived hundreds of years afterwards that, that this is a mistake. Well, guess what? One day an archaeologist was digging around a temple in Syria, found a, a stone tablet, found a text that said that Lysanias did exist and that he existed the time that the Bible said over and over and over again, history agrees with the Bible. History agrees with the Bible. The Bible is historic, historically accurate. You know what else? The Bible's not only historical, historically accurate, but the Bible's also scientifically accurate. Scientifically accurate. The design of our earth is described in the Bible. Did you know that? Isaiah 40, 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. You know, it's interesting, and some of you may know this, but for hundreds of years, Men thought that the earth was flat. You know, there are still people today who say that the earth is flat. But the Bible here tells us that it's a sphere. Now, here's the thing. If you look at this verse in a Strong's Concordance, and you look at this word, this Hebrew word, and you look at the definition of the Hebrew word, the definition of circle in this verse is, let me read it, circle, circuit, compass, but not a sphere. It's in the Strong's Concordance and it's in the Young's Concordance. And many flat earthers, when you bring up this verse to a flat earther, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, it's, it's a circle. It's a flat circle. It is. Yeah, we believe it's a circle, but it's a flat circle because that doesn't mean sphere. We see, here's the thing. When, when Strong's and Young's were writing their concordances of the Greek and Hebrew language, they just gave general definitions and didn't give the masculine, feminine tenses of these words. This word circle in Isaiah 40, 22, it's masculine. And it means circle, 
sphere. Understand this morning that the Bible stated that the earth was a sphere hundreds of years before philosophers and scientists began to theorize that. The Bible said it first. Did you know that the Bible teaches us about gravity? The Bible teaches us about gravity. In the book of Job, the oldest book in the Bible, Job 26, 7 says, He stretcheth out the north over an empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Hangeth, it sounds like gravity holding it in place to me. Hangeth the earth upon nothing. Don't you understand that the ancient mythologies, ancient people thought that the earth was on the back of a big elephant? They thought the earth was on the back of a giant turtle. And, and even the Egyptians and the Babylonians thought that the earth was the top of one big mountain. And here in the Bible, the earth says, the oldest book in the Bible says the earth is kind of hangs out there upon nothing. We have infallible truths in our hand this morning. I want to revisit prophecy once again because I really, really, really believe that prophecy really makes this book stand out. It makes our Bible unique. When any time any other religion attempts prophecy, it's very vague. It's almost like Nostradamus, you know. His prophecies are extremely vague and can, can really, uh, you can apply those just about anything you try hard enough to. But the Bible's prophecies are very, very specific. And when I think about specific prophecy, I think about the prophecies concerning Jesus. I think about the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that his birth was prophesied in the Old Testament within just a few years of his birth? The mo- even the mode of his birth. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The mode of his birth, that he would be born of a virgin. But also the place of his birth was prophesied. Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth uh, unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. What an amazing book that 700 years prior to the coming of Christ, we read about the time of his coming, where he would be born, that he would be born of a virgin, And God pinpointed the exact place on this massive earth. This little village of Bethlehem is one among thousands. But God pinpointed when he would be born. This book, this Bible, predicted 600 years before it happened, the year, month, and exact date that Jesus would ride into Bethlehem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. It prophesied it down to the very day. Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. It prophesied when the Messiah would ride ride into Jerusalem. I'm telling you this morning, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is a supernatural book. This is a supernatural book. Think about that before you disrespect it next time. 
Think about that before you throw it on the ground. Think about that before you put something on top of it. I think our Bible should be revered. I really do. I'm telling you that this is a supernatural book and it's high above all literature and it's high above all opinions that this world can offer. Another thing I want to talk to you about this morning is the durability of the Bible. This Bible is durable. I want you to think about the durability of the Bible. Verse 15, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Huh. What Paul is saying to Timothy right here. He's saying, from your childhood, you've known the scriptures. Why? Because his parents taught it to him. The parents didn't rely on the church to teach the kids the Bible. The parents taught the kids the Bible. So we had parents that read the Bible to their children. Just don't, don't leave teaching your kids the Bible up to the church. You Read the Bible to your kids. Read the Bible in your home. He said to Timothy, Timothy, I know you learned this from mama. I know you learned this from grandma. Okay, you've, you've, through all these years, that you've learned it from them. I want you to see this morning that the words are preserved. When you talk about the durability of Scripture, I want you to know this morning that this book has been preserved for us. Deuteronomy 29.21 The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. Forever. Okay? It is, it, it is for us forever. Psalms 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So God says, just like my people had the word of God, the early people had it back in Moses' day, I can assure you and promise you that even in this present day, you will still have access to my word. Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That verse not only tells us the word of God is not going to pass away, but you know, it does something else. It proves it in another way. You know why? Because 800 years later, somebody else quoted that verse word for word in 1 Peter. 1, 24, 25, for all flesh is as grass and all glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof fadeth, falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. So Isaiah said that the, that the word is not going to pass away. And then 800 years later, Peter quoted Isaiah saying that the word is not going to pass away, proving that it can be preserved. Because he quoted it word for word 800 years later. And we're 500 years removed from Peter. If God can preserve his word for Peter, God can preserve his word for us. Matthew 5.18 For I verily say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
Nothing in my scripture will be taken away. It is all reliable. Every jot, every tittle, every comma, every dot over lowercase j is important. He preserved this text, and not only did he preserve it, he made sure that we can have copies in our hands. If you have a copy of the Word of God this morning, let me see it. Let me see your Bible. You have a copy of the Word of God this morning. Bless God. And you know what? Some of you holding up your phones, heathens. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he, just kidding. But you know, that, that even shows us that even with the Word of God on our phones, everywhere we go, I've got my phone in my pocket here. I've got three or four different versions of the Bible here on my phone. It goes with me everywhere I go, just showing that God has promised he would preserve his Bible. But you know, even the manuscripts have been preserved. You know what people say? Where are the originals? Where are the original letters that the apostles wrote? They're actually called the autographs. Where are the autographs? We don't have them. But you know what? Maybe it's a good thing we don't have them. Because what do humans try to do? If we had the originals, we might try to worship them. We might try to, might try to hold them up. But you know what we do have? We have over 5,000 manuscripts just in Greek. We have over 20,000 manuscripts of the Bible in other languages. People cannot hide from us what the originals have said. There are too many copies. Look, even if we didn't have, say we had no manuscripts. We've got over, over, over 20,000. Say we had none of them. And all we had were the sermons that the early church fathers preached. We have their sermons written out, and they preached on the Bible, through the Bible, every verse in the New Testament. If we had just their sermons, we could find out, we could write a copy of the New Testament from just their sermons alone. We have the preserved Word of God. We have it this morning. We're still finding papyrus. We, we, we have found the papyrus, some manuscripts, P42, P45, P78. We have found these, these, these manuscripts, and they date back to within 100 years of when the original was written. And we've discovered a lot over the last couple hundred years. You know, back when the King James Bible was, 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 was translated, we only had maybe a fraction of the manuscripts available at that. I think it's somewhere between 1,200 and 1,600. And today we have over 5,000. Well, man, with all of these new manuscripts, we must have had some new readings. What are some new readings that we have since we found all these new manuscripts? You know how many new readings of the Bible we got? Zero. Because we had it the whole time. We had it the whole time. Now, sometimes we said, okay, well, this, this, little, this little line in Scripture, it could be option A. It could be option B. So we'll put A in the text and B in the footnote. But then we got all these manuscripts and we read them and say, oh, okay. So it's more likely B. So we'll put B in the line and we'll put A in the footnote. But we've had all the readings. We got, we got no new readings from these manuscripts because he's preserved his word. I want to tell you this morning, the Bible's indestructible. 
The Bible is indestructible. No matter what tyrant tried to get rid of the Bible, they always failed. They tried to burn it, ban it, outlaw it, outlaw it from Roman emperors, and from from Roman emperors all the way to present day dominated, uh, present day communist dominated countries. Three hundred three Diocletian issued an edict to stop Christians from worshiping and destroy their scriptures. You see, burning them was a common thing. That's probably why we don't have the originals today, because they were probably burned. But then 25 years later, Constantine ordered Eusebius to have 50 copies of the Bible sent throughout the Roman Empire. You see, every time this devil comes up, tries to destroy the word, God does something to preserve it. Okay? The attacks. He sustains the Bible through the attacks on it. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English, all the while running from authorities. You see, in William Tyndale's Bible, it was illegal to translate the Bible. Very illegal. But he didn't care, and he started translating the Bible, and he would send the Bibles to Belgium, and the authorities would find the Bibles, and they would burn them, and he would keep translating the Bibles. And and William Tyndale was martyred in 1536. But you know what? His Bible that, that he translated, it's in the lineage of the Bible you have in your lap today. Then we have the capability of the Bible. Verse 16 and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When I think about the capability of the Bible, I think about how the Bible saved me. I think about what the Bible has done for me in my life, how the Bible has helped me be a better father. How the Bible's helped me be a better husband. And I think about that and how the Bible has helped me understand some difficult circumstances in life. You're going to come across some difficult circumstances. It's going to be really hard to define. The Bible can help you make sense of it. Because this book is alive and it speaks to your heart like no other book can. This Bible has authentic power. A.W. Tozer said, an honest man with an open Bible and a pad and pencil is sure to find out what's wrong with him very quickly. And then he'll find out how to make it right very quickly. (coughs) The Bible says it gives us doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. Now we'll go through those in just a minute. But doctrine is a set of beliefs. Reproof is when you need help. It's help when you need it. And we'll talk about it here in a second. Thomas Brooks said, it is the very drift and design of the whole scripture to bring people first to an acquaintance with Christ, then to an acceptance of Christ, and then to an assurance in their walk with Christ. You show me a Christian that gets away from this Bible, and I will show you a Christian that has lost their assurance. Who has lost their assurance. They say things like, I want to go to heaven, I'm trying to go to heaven, and there's no assurance of their salvation. You show me a Christian that has stopped reading and stopped being faithful to church, and, 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 and you show me a Christian. That's why, that's why this pandemic as a pastor, it's really concerning to me. 
It's really concerning to me. It's kind of disrupting our normal flow of things, how we normally do our things in church. And here's the thing is, is you have to be faithful because if a Christian gets away from the teaching and preaching and studying of the Bible for any length of time, there's not going to be that change in their life that's brought because of the Word of God. It's very concerning to me. We have authoritative principles. First, we have doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine shows us what is right. It shows us what is right. I mean, it's written in the Bible. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to figure it out. Oh, it's written in the Bible. For example, it says in the Bible, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. I don't have to wake up every single Sunday morning and contemplate that. I don't have to wake up every single morning and try to figure out what exactly that means. I don't have to figure it out. It means what it means. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Go to church. Now listen, I know it's real confusing in the day and time in which we live, and I know there are people with underlining health conditions, and, and you know, I know we've got Facebook Live set up and running every Sunday, and we're going to continue to do that. And I understand we're just trying to do the best we can in the culture in which we live. I understand that. But you know what? If you and your family are going to do the Facebook Live thing, then do it right. How do you do it? Do you have it playing on the background as you're cooking breakfast? Do you play it, oh, I'll, I'll watch it tomorrow on my way to work? Or do you treat it like church? If you're going to do it, do it right, okay? It's like in the Bible where the Bible says, oh, you have to love your wife. I don't have to wake up every morning and rediscover what that means. I don't say, Yo, you know what, I, you know, I know it says I'm supposed to love my wife, but I'm not feeling it today. You got to love your wife whether you feel it or not, okay? You feel something if you don't, okay? But you got to love her whether you feel it or not. It, do, it doesn't care about your, the doctrines of the Bible don't care about your feelings because it's a doctrine that Jesus, was, that Jesus gave me. I don't have to wake up every morning and try to rediscover who Jesus is. He gave me the doctrine in the Bible who he is, Okay? Uh, I mean, I don't have to wake up every day and decide if I should read my Bible or not. It's here that I should read my Bible. I should study my Bible. It's a doctrine that's given to me. And what we need today more than anything is we need Christians grounded in doctrine so their Christianity isn't so wishy-washy and back and forth. We need Christians grounded in doctrine. And you're not going to get grounded in doctrine unless you read the doctrine. Unless you read the Bible, unless you listen to the Bible being preached and being taught. Doctrinal conviction is how we live the Christian life. And then reproof. You know what, the, what reproof means? It means it shows us we are wrong. If you are wrong, the Bible will tell you you are wrong. But then again, that's why some people don't go to church. Some people don't go to church because of that. I don't want that preacher telling them what to do. I don't have a desire to tell you what to do. I do have a desire for the word of God to tell you what to do. That is my desire. Okay. Um, if God wants to reprove your thought life, 
If God wants to reprove an inaction in your life, any area in your life, He's going to do it through His Word. And then correction. Correction shows us how to get right. The Word of God does not only condemn us, but the Word of God corrects us. The Word of God says, this is wrong, and this is how you fix it. This is where you're messing up. This is how you get right. See, the Bible doesn't just condemn us. The Bible corrects us. It shows us how to fix it, how to make it better. And then instruction. Instruction is showing you how to stay right. God says, I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to guide you. Christian, you don't need a life coach. You need the Bible. You don't need a self-help book. You need a Bible. You don't need a guru. You need a Bible. You don't need daily inspirational Facebook memes on Facebook. You need the Bible. And then we have a perfect process. 2 Timothy 3.17 That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let me say that every single one of us should desire to be men and women of God. We all should desire that. The word perfect means mature and you grow to become maturity so that's what the bible does is the bible helps us grow the bible helps us mature you cannot grow as a christian without the word of god why do we need to grow that the man of god may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works we need to grow so that we'll be ready to do what god has called us to do D.L. Moody said that the Bible wasn't given to us to gain knowledge, but to change our lives and convict us and change us. This book is the mind of God. It shows us the state of man. It shows us the way of salvation. Believe it, trust it, and live it. I like what Ronald Reagan said about the Bible. Ronald Reagan said, within the covers of one single book, the Bible is the answer to all the problems that we face today. If we would only read and believe. If someone's burdened, bear their burden. If someone is neglected, love your neighbor. If someone has need, help them in their time of need. But... There is no greater thing that the Bible can do than convict the heart of a person that needs to turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because, you see, the Bible is how someone gets saved. See, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You're not going to get saved without the Word of God. No one is saved without the Word of God. Salvation is not, I saw a vision in my bed. Salvation is not, I turned over a new leaf. Salvation isn't, it was really, really dark and, and now the light came on. Salvation is response in response to the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And friend, when you hear from the Bible that you are a sinner and that you fall short the glory of God. And Jesus came and he died on a cross and he shed his blood to forgive you of your sin. And if you turn
turn your back on your old way of life. You repent from your old way and you turn in faith to Jesus and you put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. When you do that, you accept Him, you are saved. And how do we know that? The message in the Word of God. Do you know that today?